If you want to find your way back to your seats. Don't make me come out there now. All right, as we uh, come back, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. So if you want to kind of get there, turn ahead or click there if you're using your phone, that's where we're going to be. Um, but I do have to tell you right now, here's a picture of what's going on over at the deck. Uh, there are 60 middle school and high school students from Rock Hill that are not going to be here this morning because they're there worshiping Jesus with thousands of other teenagers around Minnesota. Uh, all of the free churches and the Baptist general or converged churches um, in Minnesota gather together every other year for this uh, youth conference called District Blitz. Um, and they're there along with 16 other adult leaders from Rock Hill. And so I think before we dive into God's words, we should just pray for them. See, we're a church where old people like me, 41, can meet Jesus and can be built up, right? We got some really old people, but we won't talk about that. But also young people, like those in their 60s. No, young people can meet Jesus and follow him wholeheartedly. And here's, here's the thing that I often find about churches. Um, as much as we need the older people to kind of mentor and shape and help us, and we do, oh, we do. We need the life that comes with young people, middle school, high school, college students. I have it on good authority that these really good seats are going to be freeing up in a couple weeks, so keep that in mind, all right? Your chance is coming, but you guys are welcome to stick around for the summer, too. We'd love to have you. Um, but man, do we need the life and idealism that comes with age before we get jaded and cynical where we just take Jesus at his word and we believe what he's going to say and we don't have all of these excuses in the back of our minds. See, when a church gathers and there's young people and there's older people and all of the challenges of every stage of life, it's a beautiful thing. So I'll shut up uh, about that. Let's just pray for our students right now and the leaders and then pray for our time in God's word. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are gathering thousands of middle school and high school students right now. And Lord, there's a lot of energy at that event. I pray that you would open young minds and hearts up to the truth and to the beauty of what a life looked like, looks like as a disciple of Jesus. I pray, God, that those students would understand your grace and would believe. I pray for those that believe that they would grasp a vision for their middle school, for their high school, and how you might use them for your glory. God, give them a picture for life. And I pray maybe, Lord, that you might even call some of them uh, to the ministry, to maybe to uh, the mission field and living their life in a country not this, to make much of Jesus. Lord, our lives are yours. You gift us as you will, not for our sake, but for your glory. So Lord, as we look at that in 1 Corinthians 12 today and how you might gift us, I pray that all of us would get a sense of how you've gifted us, would have an appreciation for those who are gifted differently, and would leave from here knowing how you've called us to serve for your glory and our joy. So God, would you do that this morning through me or in spite of me? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Here's a brief overview video of 1 Corinthians as we go through our thread series. The book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth around 55 AD. The letter is Paul's reproach of the Corinthians' ongoing sinful lifestyle, hoping to restore the church to its foundation in Christ. Paul addresses each of the church's issues, contrasting their behavior with the example of Christ and pointing out the discrepancy between their claimed beliefs and everyday actions. In particular, Paul addresses the issues of tribalism around early church teachers, continuation of immoral sexual exploits, ethnic divisions between Jews and non-Jews, and growing disbelief in Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection. Paul calls the Corinthians to allow the gospel to penetrate every area of their lives with the knowledge that God's sacrificial, unending love will motivate and sustain their change of heart. Because Christ did not remain dead, but conquered sin's power through his glorious resurrection, his work has set the Corinthians free from their former patterns of pride, thoughtless sex, and disunity. The church is called to live as a unified body, serving one another and exemplifying Jesus' love to each other. I'm guessing that most of us at some point have driven by in a city something called Berean Baptist Church, or maybe we've come across an Antioch Community Church. I bet most of us have never come to Corinthians Community Church, because if you read the book of Corinthians, you realize this church is messed up. There is divisions, there's sexual immorality. I mean, when they got together to celebrate communion, some people were getting drunk. Like seriously, we often look at or think about the New Testament church with these rose-colored glasses, and this church was anything but. And the letter of 1 Corinthians is essentially the Apostle Paul answering a lot of the questions that they've written to him about in many ways correcting so many of the things that they've gotten wrong so that they are actually a church that reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ and his love for them. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, which talks about the church as a human body. Now, as a kid growing up, my hero was Kirby Puckett. As in as is every Minnesota Twins fan who grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Like, if you ever went to the Metrodome, you can still hear it, Kirby Puckett, right? And, like, I loved Kirby Puckett. He was my hero. That's why I wore number 34 all the way through. He was the best. And then in 1996, during spring training, they were going to be really good that year. And Kirby Puckett woke up one day in, in spring training, and his right eye was blurry. He couldn't see anything. He came to find out that he had glaucoma in his right eye, and over the next 100 days, he would see eye specialist after eye specialist. He would have three different procedures done, and then 100 days after he woke up, he would announce to all of these tear-filled middle school boys, I'm retiring. I can't play baseball anymore. Now, he was still very much at his peak physically. He had a lot of good years of baseball in him, but he couldn't play because he couldn't see. The human body is connected like that, isn't it? When you think about playing baseball at a high level, 
Think of all the things that need to work in tandem in order for you to hit the ball. Your eyes and your brain and your arms and your legs and your hips and your hands and your fingers all have to be working simultaneously in a fraction of a second for you to hit that fastball or that curveball. And here you have one of the best hitters ever not able to touch a ball in, or a, a ball in batting practice at 50 or 60 miles an hour. So he hung it up. Have you ever thought about the church as an interdependent human body? It's a, an extended metaphor that we are going to explore in 1 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul, when speaking to this church about their various spiritual giftings, likens them to a human body made up of different parts or different gifts, all part of the same body, but each bringing something unique and vital so that the whole church or the whole body works. So let's read it together. We're going to do something a little different today. I want you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able to, if you can't, that's fine. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, turn or click there. It'll also be here on the screen, but we'll read this together. And if this fails miserably, we won't do it again. But I think there's something about standing that honors God's Word written to us as His people. It also keeps you awake for a little bit longer. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? You see the ridiculousness of the picture? It's meant to hit you that way. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is God's word. You may be seated. You guys were wondering, if I'm, am I going to forget and just keep plowing ahead and we're going to have to stand for the whole sermon? No, you're welcome. <laughs> Paul uses an extended metaphor about the human body to get across some really important truths to us about spiritual gifts and about how we are to relate to one another as the church. Let me give you three words to help. Unity, diversity, and interdependence. Unity, diversity, and interdependence. Unity, a body is a unified whole. It is one body. Diversity, a body is diverse. There are all kinds of different parts that make up the body in order for it to function in a healthy way. Interdependence, we, our bodies are connected with one another, and every part of the body contributes something so that the entire body can thrive. This makes sense. This is not that hard of a metaphor for us to get our mind around, is it? Here's the point. Every person in this church is needed. You are needed. And if you are in Christ, you are gifted with a spiritual gift, meaning when you do some things, there's an authority there that is not your own. It is supernatural in origin. And we need it. We need it. When it comes to spiritual gifting, we as a people ought to value every part of the body, every person, and see them as an indispensable contribution to the health of the whole. Now, did you know on Easter Sunday, we had 733 people gather together in our three campuses? It's incredible. It's incredible. But you, can I just tell you what I don't want to spend my life doing? I don't want to gather week in and week out with 700 people where 50 people are doing the work of ministry and 650 people are gathering to consume it. What a lame church that would be. What a lame experience that would be is if we reduced the church to that. Where the majority of people didn't know that they were gifted, or if they knew that they were gifted, they, they were given the message over and over and over, you're not needed here. Most churches tend to function that way, practically speaking. There's people who do ministry, 
and those who consume ministry, but rather we are given a picture in the New Testament of everybody being gifted if they're in Christ and everybody using that particular gift to glorify God by loving each other, by serving each other, by meeting needs. And the book of Ephesians chapter four gives us a picture that everybody in the body then is brought to a place of spiritual maturity. Let's dive in. Paul begins, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, or brothers and sisters, he's addressing the church. His letter is seemingly kind of these pastoral answers to what they've asked him, and he's dealt with all kinds of mess up until this point. Now he addresses spiritual gifts and how they're supposed to function when the church gathers together. He spends three chapters, actually, on this topic, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. We're just going to look at chapter 12 together because it's an extended metaphor that's easy to get our mind around but hard to work out, practically speaking. Four basic concepts. Every believer in Jesus Christ is, is gifted with at least one spiritual gift. Second, every spiritual gift is vital to the healthy functioning of the church. Third, we have a sinful tendency to elevate some giftings and ne neglect others. We should not do that. Instead, we ought to honor every single gifting and value its unique contribution to the whole. That's when it gets exciting. And fourth, every believer should use their spiritual gift or gifting to serve with joy and humility and love. Let me say this when it comes to spiritual maturity. Using your spiritual gift is part of your spiritual maturity, but it's not the whole. It's not the end-all, be-all of spiritual maturity. When it comes to maturity in Christ, there's the gifting of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. And we live in a, we live in a particular culture that likes to elevate the gifting of the Spirit and see that as equivalent to spiritual maturity rather than the fruit of the Spirit. It's not an either or, it's a both and. But what I'm trying to say is it's incredibly possible for you to be greatly gifted by the Spirit of God but still be incredibly immature. And when I say the fruit of the Spirit, I'm talking about the Christ-like character that the Holy Spirit begins to shape and form in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. See, we are gifted differently and to different degrees, but every single one of us can begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, I'll be preaching on that in a couple weeks from the book of Galatians. On the other hand, using and growing in our spiritual gifting is part of our maturity. It's part of why we're still here. It's why God has given breath to your lungs and, and gifting to your body because he's got work for you to do. It's not your work, it's his work, but he chooses to do it through you. See, here's the thing. All of us long for a sense of meaning and significance, don't we? Does my life really matter? Am I really accomplishing something? And the resounding truth in the New Testament is yes. In fact, you have God's work to do. He has gifted you to do it. So do it. But the gifting that he's given you is not for you, it's for the common good. It's for his glory and so that other people benefit from it. So every person in Jesus Christ is gifted with at least one spiritual gift. Let's look at verses four to 11. 
Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then he lists for us nine different spiritual gifts. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, the goal is not to give us an exhaustive list of all of the spiritual gifts, but instead to help everyone realize, hey, I have one of those, and that I ought to use that for the glory of God and the building up of his church. All of these gifts, even though different, are a manifestation of the same Holy Spirit working in us. So you see the unity part and the diversity part, right? The Spirit doesn't manifest himself in power in the same person in exactly the same ways. He's given us certain gifts and abilities to make much of him and to serve each other. And the second point he makes is that every one of these gifts is absolutely vital to the healthy functioning of the church. Now, when was the last time that you thought about your liver or your kidneys? I'm guessing it's probably been a while. Unless, of course, you have a liver or kidney disease. Then my guess is you probably think about it every day, or at least multiple times a week. You see, usually the only time that we think about certain parts of the body is when they stop working for some reason. We, we then notice them intensely. Now, I never think about my ribs, but have you ever cracked a rib? It's hard to think about anything else, isn't it? Or have you ever heard the phrase, that sticks out like a sore thumb? Do you ever go around admiring people's thumbs? No, that's weird. That's really weird, right? Hey, can I see your thumbs? No, dude, that's, that's weird. And yet, if you've ever hurt your thumb, you realize very quickly how many things you use your thumb for. That's why we have the phrase, it sticks out like a sore thumb, because you realize this small little appendage on my body, when it doesn't work or function well, I can't do half the stuff I need to do. Paul's point here in verses 12 to 26 is to help us see how indispensable every single gifting is to the whole of the church. That if one part is not functioning or off, we all will feel it. Now before I move on and break that down even more, I just want you to know, you matter to this church. Some of you guys think, I don't matter. My gift is insignificant. That's not true. That's a lie from the enemy. You matter, and God has gifted you, and he's gifted you to provide or to use your gifting in a vital way for this church. You may not feel very important or significant, but we need you, and God's placed you here. Your being here is not an accident. And God may uniquely gift you for your life, or he may uniquely gift you for this season because of the other people that are around you. I don't know if you guys remember Pastor Dave, but Pastor Dave would often, in our (coughs) pastoral meetings with he and me and Paul, say, it's amazing how much differently I function in this church than I did in my previous ministry. 
He said, in my previous ministry, I was more of the innovative one and the, and the one on the front lines pushing things out. He's like, when I come here, you and Paul are really good at that. And I actually find the, that there's different giftings that are coming out in me in this particular body versus other bodies. He said, I think we often think about this idea of gifting from an individualistic perspective rather than a corporate perspective. Of this is my gift and this is what I'm going to do. And that might be the case. And yet God has every right in certain groups of people to say, no, I'm going to gift you in this particular way. Or that particular gift, which you didn't think was one of your primary ones, is the one that's going to function most here because that's what's needed. It's really freeing, isn't it? It allows us to think, God, what are you doing here? Or God, what isn't happening here? And how can I jump in to help? Now, isn't that such a different framework from how so many of us think about church? We often think about it from like an assessment standpoint or a consumeristic standpoint of what's this church really good at and do I like that or not? Well, this church doesn't have very good teaching or the music's all right, but their kids' ministry leaves something to be desired. But the default that we're supposed to have is not that, although you want to find a church that is a good fit, Right? But rather, hey, these things aren't actually getting done. How might I help to address the particular weaknesses? See, the picture of the church as an interconnected body is a beautiful picture. But like all beautiful things, all good and amazing things, we have a tendency to take that and turn diversity into something that creates rivalries, factions, some people thinking that they're better than others. We have a tendency to elevate some giftings while neglecting others. And Paul says, don't do that. Instead, we ought to honor every single gifting and value its unique contribution to the whole, even the ones that seem a little bit less presentable. The picture of a body made up of all eyes is meant to be ridiculous and elicit a laugh from us. Can you imagine? or all noses, or all hands, or all feet. So true, it's ridiculous for us to treat parts of the church as if you don't matter. We're to appreciate instead the diversity of the body of Christ and move forward with humility and self-awareness. Now here's the thing. The way that we're wired, often the way that we're gifted, we tend to elevate some giftings and downplay others. We tend to see spiritual maturity through the lens of how God has wired and gifted us versus other people. And we can often look down on people who don't value or are gifted in the same ways that we are. For the teachers and the theologians in the room, you often tend to think of spiritual maturity through the lens of right doctrine or accurate teaching. And let me tell you, Accurate teaching is important. Bad teaching does hurt people. But that's not the end-all, be-all of spiritual maturity. And that's not how God has wired every single person. All of us, as we grow in wisdom, have certain like ballasts in our life, things that give us perspective. And one of the things that has often given me perspective in the area of spiritual maturity is my grandpa. My grandpa's 98 years old, and the majority of his family, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, love and serve Jesus. 
He's walked through a lot of life. He's been married for 76 years now. Incredible. They don't even keep statistics on that many years. You have to get married really young and live really long, both of you. My grandpa is one of the most generous people. He's one of the most godly people. He is incredibly spiritually mature. My grandpa could not tell you the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. There are a lot of complex theological truths that he would just smile and say, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't tell you for someone who's wired more as the theologian how important that has been throughout my life to have that as a ballast so that I don't look at theological or I don't look at spiritual maturity only through the lens of my gifting and how God has wired me. Now I'm not saying that those things are unimportant, but I'm saying they're not the end all be all. That's why every week when we dismiss you, we talk about declaring, displaying and delighting in the gospel. Declaring that there's an accurateness to the truth that we want to declare and declare boldly and joyfully. Displaying means that that truth actually has to integrate into our lives so that we demonstrate or we display the beauty of the gospel in our relationships and how we relate to one another. And delighting, there's a, there's a subjective internal component that should transform who I am from the inside out. There's an experience of God that should happen. It's kind of like head, heart, and hands. All of those things are meant to work together for our spiritual maturity. But we tend to pick out one. Usually it's where we're gifted or it's how we're wired and see everybody through that. That's not helpful. In fact, it actually stunts our growth a little bit. It's incredibly, it's, it's very likely that you are incredibly gifted in one area, but have some massive gaps in another when it comes to gifting. Like you can be a great preacher and teacher and be a terrible administrator, I've heard. Um, <laughs> I've heard. It's a vicious rumor going out around here. Or you may have an incredible way teaching children, but when it comes to adults, no way. Or you might be amazing at meeting practical, tangible needs, but struggle to share your faith and give a defense of it. Or maybe you're incredibly generous with your money, but if someone asks you to lead a time of singing and music, you might literally die. <laughs> Instead of looking down at people that are gifted differently than us, we should appreciate them, shouldn't we? And value and elevate their contribution to the whole and especially those that aren't all that noticeable, that aren't on display all the time. We should make a special effort to make sure that we elevate those things because those are indispensable, is what we're told. How much better it is to praise God for the diversity of peoples and callings in the body and joyfully embrace that so that we can accomplish so much more together than we can on our own. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Listen to this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If one member in our body is hurting, we're all hurting. We feel that. If another member of the church is rejoicing or being honored, 
We rejoice in that together. What a beautiful picture. And yet that's hard because those things are simultaneously happening all the time. Where we emotionally are there with those who are broken over their marriages or grieving over a loss of someone or, or just caught up and ensnared in sin in hard circumstances. Well, at the same time, someone's rejoicing. In three weeks, we'll sub, and there'll be some people in this room that every time that happens, there's an ache and a longing because you've battled infertility and you've not been able to have kids. Or you long to be married and have a family, but you don't. Or you did, and you have so many regrets that everything is bittersweet, and all those things are going to happen at once. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In our preaching meeting this week, Robert Lilligard said something that I thought was profound. I want to share it with you. In light of a city group, he said this, and he's actually right there, so everybody can look at him now and make things awkward. <laughs> Burdens are lighter when they are shared, and joys are multiplied when they are shared. That's some truth right there, isn't it? Burdens are lighter when we share each other's burdens and we help carry those things. But you know what? Joys are more intense too. When they're not just ours, but we share them. They, it has a way of multiplying the joy. When, we, when something good happens and we keep telling the story, it's like we get to re-experience it again. When others share in the joy of that. Burdens are lighter and joys are multiplied when we, when we do it together. And that's what we're longing for, isn't it? Whether we've been able to articulate it up till this point or not, we all have that longing to belong to others, to share life, the burdens and the joys, to know that we're not alone. And when the church works, there are few things that are more beautiful and transforming. Which means the opposite's also true, isn't it? When the church breaks and doesn't work like this, it's like when families break and don't work the way that they're supposed to. It's, when mar it's like when marriages break. And two people who love each other say some of the worst things in the world to each other. Because with the potential of great goodness and joy also comes the opportunity for devastation. And I think the church is no different. When we feel anonymous, unknown, uncared for, forgotten, we wonder if there's any reason to show up at all. When we feel marginalized, unneeded, not heard, undervalued. It's devastating, isn't it? We long to make a contribution, but wonder if our life really matters. On the flip side, if we feel needed, but not appreciated, we often feel used, consumed, treated like a commodity that's expendable to others. That's devastating. I think it's one of the ch most challenging things of pastoral ministry if I'm, if I'm being honest with you, when you try to live out covenant community with people and they treat you like a commodity with no more attachment to you than their insurance agent. It's devastating. And not just as leaders, it's devastating when we feel that even in a small level in city groups, when we pour out but then someone leaves for a dumb reason and never talks to you about it, it makes you less and less likely to want to do it again, Right? See, what is so beautiful can also be so scarring and hurting because that tends to be how things are. The better the gift, the worse it is when things are distorted. 
My prayer for you in this church is that you will be known, you will feel needed, but that with that you'll also be appreciated and honored. You'll be enjoyed as you are dependent on. And you know what? That's actually how you're created to live. You're not created to live as a consumer. That leads to very little joy and very little sense of connection. You're created to belong and to participate, even with the risks. So here's, here's what I want. I want to get really practical for a minute. I want five things for you this morning. One, that you would know what your spiritual gift is. Two, that you would know why your spiritual gift matters. Three, that you would know why other spiritual gifts matter and have a proper value for how others are gifted. Four, that you would know how your gift ought to operate in this body today. And five, that you would use it in love. So first, that you would know what your spiritual gift is. The, the question is, how do I know how I'm gifted spiritually? And really, there's two ways to find out. Neither of them are flawless. One, uh, kind of a way to start, is to go and take an, a, a spiritual gift testing somewhere or an inventory somewhere, and then consider the results. Now, these are imperfect tests. Sometimes they reflect back to us the things that we want to be gifted in rather than what we're gifted in. But I found them to be a really good starting place to try to discern where we're spiritually gifted. If you go to the next slide, there's giftstest.com. There's, there's mine. The reason I put that one up is not that it's exhaustive, but it's simple. It takes like five minutes, tops. That, that's how mine came back with uh, apostleship or starting new things and faith and teaching and preaching and leadership. Makes sense, right? You're like, uh, no. <laughs> well, we can talk about that later, maybe offline. But those are just some things. And you know what I would do with that? I would take that to the people who know me and say, hey, does this make sense? Does this look like it's accurate about me and my life? Now, maybe those are five good things, things that I'm good at, and maybe my spiritual gift is underneath that, kind of empowering me to do those things. Um, but those are maybe a debate for another time. This is just how do I discover where I'm gifted? Check it out, giftstest.com. Spend five minutes this week and maybe bring it to your city group to discuss. Be a great way to figure that out. The second way that you can discover your spiritual gift is just start doing stuff and figure out what lights you up. Or figure out where in ministry, when you serve, there's just a different authority than other places. There's just a different sense of like God's at work here in ways that are way beyond me and obviously beyond me. Take note. What are you doing? Who are you serving? And it's incredibly helpful, those two different ways. One is to just kind of a results-based analytical approach. Another is to just try stuff and realize God has uniquely gifted you for some things. Second, that you would know why your gift matters. Can you imagine a basketball team playing three against five? NBA playoffs are going on right now. I know in Minnesota we never know what that is, but... Uh, Imagine if you had to play a five-on-five -five basketball game with three people on the court at any time. It's not going to work because you can't cover everybody. It feels like so many churches are trying to get by three-on-five because only a smaller percentage of people actually serve and carry the load. I don't want to burn you out, but you need to know that what you have been gifted with matters, and it matters in this church. Third, that you would know why other spiritual gifts matter and have a proper value for how others are gifted. A church without good teaching is not actually a healthy church. Bad teaching misleads people, hurts people. But a church that doesn't show compassion and tangible love 
to those in need is also not a healthy church. Even if they have great doctrine. Or a church that cares for younger people but doesn't care at all about older people. It's not a healthy church. A church that sees people regularly come to know Jesus but then never disciples them to obey everything that he's commanded is not really a healthy church. And the opposite's true as well. A church that goes really deep into theological concepts but no one ever meets Jesus there gets pretty myopic and ingrown quick. Or a church that elevates certain gifts but then squelches others isn't a healthy church. All the gifts are needed. I've made my point, haven't I? Let's move on. I want you to know how your gift ought to operate in this body today. Now, this is a multifaceted question that I think is not really answered very well in a sermon. It's a lot easier for you to discuss this in your city group or in a Bible study or in a smaller group context, a team or a ministry environment. (coughs) Excuse me. If you've never been to a city group before, this might be a great week to try one out. To figure out who my people are and who can speak these things into my life, to see who I begin to maybe serve with and do some stuff. Because here's, here's the thing about spiritual gifts. It's not just running the church programs. There's Most of the ministry that happens for us as a church doesn't happen in this building. It happens as you scatter, and you gather in other places, and you team up. There's so many ways to serve and use the giftings that God has given you. Just jump in and start. Spiritual gifting, I've found, is, is, is really helpful language to figure out how has God uniquely wired me and gifted me. But I've seen it abused sometimes when it becomes an entitlement to not serve in areas that are needed, but I'm not particularly gifted in. Just because something isn't your primary spiritual gift doesn't mean that it's not helpful to jump in and just do it sometimes. In the same way, I don't think anybody at my house feels called to do the dishes. (laughs) If we waited around for someone to feel that unique joy and calling in that, we would... uh, only have paper plates. There are some things, I think, in the church that are a bit like that, that you just need to kind of roll up your sleeves and jump in. Or, or other areas. Just because you don't have the gift of mercy does not mean that you don't need to show mercy, right? Even if you don't have the gift of evangelism, you're still, from time to time, going to be called to do the work of an evangelist because someone in your life needs to know about Jesus. Or just because you don't have the gift of generosity does not mean that you're not called as a Christian to be a generous person. See, just as Christians, many of these giftings are also the callings that we have just as Christians. So spiritual gifts are meant to direct and empower us, to free us from feeling as we have to do everything all the time, but they're never meant to be an entitlement to not serve. At the end of the day, even if you know what your gift is and how it fits in the body, if you're not actually using it, I think I failed today. Or I think we're doing something wrong. The, the last thing is, is you can know from front to back how these all work and how they all operate, but if you don't actually do it, it's like learning about a diet but then eating whatever you want. It's like thinking about you're going to work out and get in shape but never going to the gym. If you don't actually do it, it has very little benefit for you. And so I want you to Serve, and serve uniquely in the area that God has given you with a heart of love. Not just so that the church gets going, that matters, but that isn't everything. So that you would experience the joy of being used by God, because that feels really good. 
And so that you can see the difference that God can make, not just in your life, but in our life together, in this city and in this area. You were made for this. Your life was meant to be more than just letting everything terminate on you. You're meant to glorify God and serve other people. Jesus said it this way, inviting us as a way to truly live. But whoever must, would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest way to find life is to pour your life out on behalf of others. It's the most fulfilling life you can have. Our passage ends with these words, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, there's a lot of stuff about desiring the greater gifts and what those are, and honestly, I think those end up being a side trail that get us off track. But at the end, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And before going into the practicals of how this ought to work in their gatherings, which is chapter 14, we get 1 Corinthians 13, which we usually only read at weddings. But it's actually primarily about spiritual gifts and how we're to interact with each other. It says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, or a car alarm that just keeps going off and will not shut up. That's in the original Greek. (laughs) And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Picture with me a community of people supernaturally gifted by God, using their giftings not to make much of themselves, but to love and serve each other. That's what I want to be part of. That, my friends, in this divided, chaotic, look at me, look at me kind of world will get people's attention. That, brothers and sisters, will display the beauty of the gospel for our community to see so that in that moment we can declare it as we ought. Let's pray. God, thank you for this practical teaching on spiritual gifts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us an understanding of how you are at work in us and through us. I pray that you might supernaturally, even in this moment, reveal to us how we're gifted. But more than that, Spirit, I pray that you would use us this week in those giftings to do your work, to make much of you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for continuing the work through messed up people, even like me. In Jesus' name, amen. As we turn our hearts to respond in worship and to sing and to give, before we do that, I want to turn our attention to the communion table.